If you would, would you take your Bibles, if you have them, and turn to Hebrews chapter 7, and our text this morning will be verses 23 through 25. Hebrews 7, 23 through 25. I came to this text and I realized that I preached it almost a year ago on Easter Sunday, as our Easter Sunday service last year. I didn't go back and listen to it or read my notes, so if I repeat a lot of the same things, it was not intentional, just because that's what the text says. And if there's something new that's added to it, well then, you can raise an eyebrow. This text deals with several different things in terms of, the, uh, of who Christ is. I think things that we as Christians may take for granted, and those that are not Christians may want answered. Why should we trust in Christ? Why is Christ trustworthy? How can Christ bring comfort to the Christian life? How is it that Christ can bring peace to the Christian soul? How is it that Christ can help a Christian through suffering? How is it that Christ is better than all things? And I think this text this morning answers the question in four primary ways. The first that we see is that Christ is a permanent priest. The second thing is that we see Christ offers a perfect salvation. And that we as Christians, third, are a particular people. And the fourth thing is that Christ gives us a perpetual intercession. And those four things tell us why Christ is so much greater. And it begins in the text by showing us that He is our permanent priest. He is our forever priest. He is our eternal priest. You'll notice in verse 23, it says, "...the former priest were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office." Now, one thing that you'll notice in this verse is that it starts off with an assertion that the former priests, that were the priests of the Old Testament, it notes that there was many of them, and why there was many of them was because they kept dying. But the thing that's, in the, that's not in your ESV text or the text that I read, you'll find in the King James Version, which is this, and it's these words, and truly... And truly they, these former priests, which introduce a contrast for us. In fact, throughout the entire book of Hebrews, it is about contrast. It is a book that has contrasted Christ with something from the Old Testament, then going on to show why Christ is better. Specifically, why Christ is greater than the Old Covenant, why the New Covenant that is in Christ is better than the Old Covenant, why Christ is greater than angels, why Christ is better than Moses, why Christ is better than Joshua, why Christ is better than the high priesthood. And this contrast continues here when it begins with, and truly those former priests, that is, to say those that were in the past, Christ is truly better than them. He is for sure, to be sure, better than them. And it notes that there were many of them. 
And so that's the contrast here. Christ is one, and in the Old Covenant there were many priests. So you have a contrast, one versus many. We have a tendency to think that more of something is better, right? We have that tendency, well, if one of these is good for me, maybe then two will be good for me. And so there's a contrast right here that shows the one, Christ is better than the slew of priests. We have to consider why there were so many to make that argument. Because we are bent on thinking if there's a bunch of something, it must be better for me. Certainly, it would be better to have a bunch of priests praying for me than to have one priest praying for me. That's our human tendency, and that's how we think. That's why we have to consider why there were so many. The text tells us because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Priests live and priests die. And because of this simple fact, they require someone to come in after them. This is fairly obvious. I don't have to explain life and death to you. It's what we experience. It's what we've all experienced. It's what we see constantly. This is a a reality. And so what we have to see is why this is such an important point in the contrast. Priests intercede on behalf of someone else. And the high priest specifically would carry every year on his chest a vest. And on that vest was 12 stones. And each of those stones was to represent the tribes of Israel. So as the priest would go into the inner sanctuary, into the Holy of Holies, he's carrying on him his people that he's supposed to represent. That's what a high priest would do. They wore a certain type of clothing, and specifically this vest with the stones on it represented the twelve tribes of Israel. And so once a year, a high priest would go into that inner chamber, go into the very presence of God on behalf of those twelve tribes. But what would happen to the priest? Well, he lives and then he does what? He dies. And so then an ex-priest would come along and once a year put on the vest with the twelve stones and represent before God the people uh, with whom he is tasked to represent. And he would do this for the next generation and he would do this again for the next generation and then he would die and another one would come about over and over again. It's a really obvious point. We might think, why is that so important? We get that that happens. Well, we have to understand the point that the text is trying to make for us. If the priest kept dying because of the natural flow of life, which is something we universally all understand and can relate to because we live, we die, we have witnessed living and dying. It means this, the thing that we fear most in life, they themselves were susceptible to. The priest was susceptible to death. The very thing that we fear You know, the idea of fear, it's uh, thanatophobia is a fear of death. That's the phobia. Thanatophobia means a fear of death. It can be an irrational fear for some. 
It can be a controlling fear for others, but the reality is that we all know that we're facing death at one point. And so it's always in the back of our minds. And so, actually, the fear of death can lead us to do strange things, can't it? It can lead us to do things that we normally wouldn't do, like eat kale, because we think it might add a little bit of extra years to our life. No one really likes kale. But we do these type of things because we think if I do them, it might expand my life, when, when really it's, it's only like speeding through town. You only gain a couple of seconds. But you think about how we, we approach death and how we live our lives. And, and this fear of death, it, it also not only forces us to do strange things, but it forces us to face reality, a, a reality that we sometimes like to brush off. Because we have to recognize this, is our lives are lived between two points, between the point of conception, where life begins, and when we take our final breath. We live between those two points. That's what's common to all. That is what is universal to all people. Both events are the controlling factors of everything that we experience in this body as we have it right now. So what does a fear of death, what does the idea of death have to do with the priesthood and the text of the scripture? It's this simple fact. The Hebrews were tempted to look to those that actually had the same issues they had. They kept dying. The high priesthood of God's old covenant, in essence, was conquered by death. That's the whole entire point in making that they die is the priesthood was susceptible to death and death had actually conquered the priesthood. You remember, death entered into the world because of sin. When you eat thereof of that fruit, you shall die. It means this, the old covenant priesthood did not conquer death. People were still susceptible to death because their priest was susceptible to death. In other words, the priesthood did not bring life. It only brought and continued a perpetual death for people. Death had power over the priest. Death has power over you and I. That's our greatest concern. That's what controls, that's what governs our life. And our real issue, our real issue is the fact that we will die and one day we will have to face God on the other side of this life. And we see that whatever fear we have for when we do close our eyes for the final time, it's not solved by any mere man. Our fears are not solved by some religious ceremony conducted by a human being. We still have to face death. Just as in the Old Covenant, they faced death. It says specifically in verse 23 is that they were prevented by death. That means death was their master, just as death is our master. The word prevented means that they were hindered. It means that they were, it, it caused them, their very death caused them 
to not be able to accomplish what they were intended. So death itself rendered their work as useless. That's why we need a high priest that's not conquered by death, but has actually conquered death itself. And as they were looking back to the old covenant, looking back to the priesthood to find comfort, they actually only looked back to face death itself. But our text is so wonderful. Look at verse 24. It begins with the word but. Little words in Scripture can be so important and carry such an impactful meaning. And this word certainly does here. It's a conjunction. It's an aversative conjunction, which means it's contrasting. It's the antithesis of something else. Um, What was said here that causes desperation, something where we see death here, we come to this little tiny conjunction that says, but here's the good news. Here's the good news. All our concerns are alleviated here. If we were looking back and facing death in the face, we have something that steps in and says, actually, there's something better. There's something good. If we recognize the desperation of looking at verse 23, where we see those that were supposed to represent us only die just like we are, we see the greatest news in the history of humanity, and it begins with the word, but... But he, that is Jesus, he holds his priesthood permanently because, which gives us the reason why, he continues forever. That's the good news. There's a priest that is not held by death, but there is a priest that has conquered death. And he has conquered death on behalf of his people. Notice what the text says. He, again referring to Jesus, it says he holds. That's a present active indicative, which means that's the present reality right now. This is what is true existing right now is that Christ holds this priesthood. He has it right now. The priesthood of Christ... The priest that carries the names of his people on his chest is currently right now holding us. You think of the imagery of the high priest wearing the 12 stones and going into the presence of God. The point is right now that Christ carrying our names upon his chest in the presence of God for us. He holds that right now. That's a reality. That's taking place right now. It's it's taking place continually. And it says that he does this permanently, which means it's not capable of being violated. It's not possible of being transferred to someone else. It's unchanging. It's unalterable. It will continue forever. That's what permanently means. And this is related to God's own unchangeableness, that God himself is immutable. He is without any shade or variation of change. He is our unchanging God, and our permanent priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, is unchangingly high priest. 
an awful bro. The priesthood of Christ could no sooner change than God could change. And why is that? Well, notice what the text says. It gives us the reason with the word because. Because he continues forever. What Christ has begun to do, what Christ is currently doing right now, he continues to do forever. His representation of his people is not only right now, not only is it lasting forever, it continues into the future. Do you see that? That right now Christ is doing this. It's not going anywhere. And he's going to continue to do it. For how long? Forever. It's unchanging. It will last. Whereas all things that we experience are changing Constantly, Christ is our unchanging high priest representing us. And we must see this because of the resurrection. We must see this that he does this permanently because he's not conquered by death, but has conquered death. As we read last week, Romans 6, 9, that death has no dominion over him. It has no control on him. Death cannot grasp our Savior because he has risen from death. He has risen from the dead. He has conquered death. By the way, when do we celebrate the resurrection of Christ? Every single second of our lives. That changes everything. That He is a risen Savior. So therefore, we see our permanent priest. Therefore, look at what He offers us in verse 25. Is a perfect salvation. It says, consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. I want to pull this apart word by word. The first thing I want you to see that he is able to save. Christ is able to save. He has power to accomplish the task. And again, this is in contrast to the priesthood. Whereas others fail to actually save... Christ is able to save. The idea of a priest is that they represent someone before God, but priests were susceptible to death. Why? Because of the wages of sin is what? Death. So who represented them? Who represented the priest? How would the priest get forgiveness of sins? You see the problem, don't you? Is that a priest didn't actually have power They didn't actually have the ability to save. And what they offered was not efficacious. Efficacious means that they were not successful in bringing about the desired result. They did not have the ability. They were not able. But Christ is able. 
And so the core of our desires and the alleviation of a universal fear is resolved in Christ because Christ is able. Christ is powerful. He has the ability. Christ is sufficient to accomplish what he intends to accomplish. Christ is able to save. He's able to save. That is to deliver from sin. That is, he's able to rescue us from judgment. He's able to rescue us from death. He is, in fact, able to save. In fact, this is why he came to save. In the birth narrative of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 21, we read this. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people His people, as we get to the next point, a particular people, he will save his people from their sins. Those people that he carries on his chest in intercession, he will save them. Jesus is his name, coming from the name Joshua, which means one who is a savior. Jesus will save. Will is a future of something that will in fact happen. He will save. The other reality is this is not only is he will he save and is he able to save, salvation is found only in him. You think of the message of the early apostles at the early in the early chapters of Acts where we read in Acts chapter 4 verse 12 and there is no salvation There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation is only found in Christ, but this does teach us something. If he is able to save, it points out a simple fact, a simple reality to us, is that we need saving. We need to be saved from something. And just very quickly, there's two things that I want to say that the Scripture makes clear that we're saved from. The first thing that we're saved from is from God Himself. Because there's a coming judgment. We see that in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Speaking of a future judgment, we need saving from a future judgment that is coming our way. We know intuitively, it's in our conscience, it's in our heart, that one day we will have to answer for our sins. One day we will stand accountable before God. If we say that God is just, then God cannot wink at sin. God cannot just say, it's okay. You just hung out with the wrong crowd, and that's why you did it. We will hear no such words from God. We will stand before Him. We will have to pay for our sins, or our sins will have to be paid for us. That's what we have before all of us. We also need saving from death. 
and specifically the second death. This is why Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, meaning he's no longer susceptible to the second death. That is that eternal death. That is before a holy God under his wrath for all of eternity. We need saving from God and we need saving from death when we are before the presence of God's wrath. So Christ is able specifically to save and then to the uttermost. It's a very interesting word, uttermost. And I realize when I say something's interesting, I mean that it's interesting to me. It may not be interesting to you. But let's hope it is. It is he is able to save to the uttermost, which the word uttermost is speaking of a wholeness. It's speaking of a completeness. It's speaking of something that's lasting and that's forever. So it's talking about the fullness of salvation. The, the only other place that you find this word is in Luke chapter 13 in verse 11. And it's very interesting how you find this. Jesus is approached by this woman that is bent over that she has some sort of structural problem with her body. And it says in verse 11 of Luke 13, And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten out. So she has some sort of problem with her spine that is debilitating to her. And, 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 and she's not able to experience a, a fullness of what her body should be capable of. That's the picture. And so when you think of that word fully, it's a completeness so something can function as it's meant to. What's amazing about this text is in verse 13 it says, And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. You see, what God does with our sin is, is many ways we are like that in our sin is where it's debilitating to us. We can't stand up straight on our own, but Christ himself is able to make us whole. He's able to save fully, completely, so that we are brought to a complete and full salvation, and it is of the entire person, and it is for Ever. It's not a momentary salvation. It's not a temporary salvation. It's not dependent upon your ability, but it is a salvation that rests entirely upon the person of Christ, His resurrection and what He has accomplished. And as Jesus said to the woman, woman, you are freed from your disability. If you are in Christ, Christ says you are free from your sin. You're no longer slave to it because Christ is able to save to the uttermost. And then the third thing is, is that we see in this text is that it's for a particular people. The text you'll notice says this, it's for those who draw near to God through Him. This is a particular people, those that have trusted in Christ. That's who this is available to. And you get a glimpse of Christ as a priest representing his people 
before he goes to the cross when he's praying on behalf of his people. And I want you to notice how he prays for a particular people. In John chapter 17, verse 9 and 10, it says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. Pretty clear. He's praying for a particular people. He's not praying for everyone. So just as the high priest bears the names of his people that he represents, Christ bears the names of those people that he represents, those who draw near to him. He says, I'm, not pray I'm praying for them, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. I am glorified in them. That is a picture of Christ praying on behalf of a particular people, a people that the Father has given him. Just as Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 37, no one can come to me unless the Father has given them to me. We see that this is a particular people, but you also see that this salvation is for those that come to the Father through Christ. Which is why Jesus says, again, before he goes to the cross, he says this in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus prays for a particular people. And that particular people has made Christ's particular people through faith. That's how you become a particular person. I want to focus on the word through for a second. I want to see, I want to show you what is yours in Christ and through Christ. In Romans chapter 5, you have an exposition of the word through, which tells us what is ours in Christ. In verse 1 of Romans chapter 5, it says, Therefore, we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that we have peace with God? What does that mean? We were at enmity with God. We were at war with God. But now peace has been made. A peace treaty has been signed. And it is through Christ. It's not by our own means. It's not by our own ability. It's not what we have gained. It's not what we could possibly earn. It is through Christ that we have peace. We go on to see what we have through Christ in verse 2. Through Him, that is through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We have access to God, to His presence, to stand in this grace which produces hope in the life of the believer, and this is through Christ. And I just want to hang on that word access to God for just a brief moment. It's important to see that the presence of God is actually a very fearful and frightful thing. This is why in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah is in the presence of God, 
He recognizes by being in the presence of God that he is a sinner. He calls down upon himself a curse. Woe is me because he's in the presence of God. And Isaiah was a prophet of God. Isaiah was called by God. Isaiah was probably a pretty good guy. But in the very presence of God and God's holiness, he recognized that he was sinful. Being in the presence of God is frightening. Some people might arrogantly think, I could, I could just go and be in the presence of God. God will melt them like a wax candle before the burning rays of the sun. That's what it would be like to be in the presence of God. We don't understand holiness until we begin to get a glimpse of God. In fact, this is why... When God was making a covenant with Israel and he calls Moses up to the mountain and Hebrews retells the story, God tells the Israelites, don't come near the mountain. Don't let your animals touch the mountain. Don't even touch it, for if you touch it, you will die. God's presence is a frightful thing. But I want you to notice the beauty of the gospel, and that's what we see in Romans chapter 5, verse 2, and repeatedly see in the book of Hebrews, is through Christ we have also obtained access by faith. Through Christ, we can come into the very presence of God with confidence and draw near to His throne of grace and receive mercy from him. Christ, through Christ, we have access. We see that through Christ in verse 11 of Romans chapter 5, we have reconciliation. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. A restored relationship has been brought about. Through Him. In verse 21, we see through Him we have eternal life. It says, So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We could just continue going not only through the book of Romans, but through the New Testament to see all these examples of what we have through Christ. But just in Romans chapter 5, we see we have, we have peace through Christ. We have access to God through Christ. We have reconciliation through Christ. We have eternal life through Christ. And now here's what you have to understand. That is for a particular people. That is available to those who have trusted in Christ. And if you haven't trusted in Christ, you don't have that peace. You have actually God's wrath. You can't draw near to God, for His judgment is upon you. You can't be in His presence. You're not reconciled to God, but you're rather an enemy. If you're not one of those that have drawn near through faith, your eternal life will be one of anguish and pain if you have not drawn near through Christ. You will remain under His just hand for all of eternity. But if you have trusted in Christ, the good news is that peace 
is now established. You can always draw near to God. Your relationship has been reconciled and you have eternal life and you never have to worry about whether He has you. That's not all. Our salvation is so glorious and so complete and full. Jesus also provides us our fourth point, perpetual intercession. Notice what the text says. Since he always lives to make intercession. The word always means this, is that he never takes time off. He never needs a break. It's constant. It's uninterrupted. He always does this on behalf of his people. Jesus doesn't get tired of doing it. It's his joy to do this. He doesn't get burdened by the task at hand, but he loves the task that's at hand. This is why he always does it. And he lives. He is the resurrected, death-conquering high priest. Meaning right now, Christ lives in a resurrected, glorious body that he will live in for all of eternity. He does this intercession. What is intercession? It's to, it's to do something for someone else. That's the basic, bare-bones meaning of intercession. But as you begin to look at the, the, the nuances of the words, it, it could mean this is to ask specifically with urgency. Can you imagine that? That picture that the text is giving us of Christ asking with urgency. We only have urgency in our prayers when there's, a, when there's a crisis at hand. But Christ always lives to intercede on behalf of His people. He always is there praying for His people. When sin convicts us, Christ intercedes for us. When guilt of the past weighs us down, Christ intercedes and lifts us up. He intercedes on our behalf and always lives to do that, and He'll never stop. It's a wonderful truth, and you see the same truth that Paul gives in Romans chapter 8 of Christ's intercession in verse 33 where we read this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So I want you to notice Romans really emphasizes the legal aspect of what Christ has done on our behalf. That He has justified us. And when a charge is brought against us, Christ intercedes. No charge can be brought against us because Christ intercedes. No one condemn us can condemn us because Christ intercedes. Romans states a legal reality of what Christ has done and then what He is doing now. This is told us to, to reassure us. This is told to us to give us hope. This is told to encourage us that there's no sin so great 
that it prevents our high priest from interceding on our behalf. And I want you to notice that it is on our behalf. It's not for himself, but for his people. He makes intercession for them. Just as he says, I don't pray for the world, but I pray for them. It's that particular people. Let me ask you this morning, are you them? Let me put it another way. Are you those people that have called upon the name of Christ and now Christ prays on your behalf? Are you by adoption one of his people and you can now go to your elder brother, the Lord Jesus, and you can cry out to your heavenly Father through the Lord Jesus? Are you one of those that Jesus counts as a friend for he lays his life down for his friends? Are you one of his sheep because he died for the sheep? Are you one of the them? Because if so, this is meant to encourage you. This is meant to give you confidence. This is meant to comfort your soul that Christ intercedes for you. You think of it like this, things that people say, I don't feel like I'm fully forgiven. Have you ever said that? Don't tell me. But have you ever said that? I don't feel like I'm fully forgiven. Notice what the text says. He is able to save fully to the uttermost completely. You might ask the question, how could God forgive me? I've done such great sin in my life. Notice what it says. He is able. Christ has the ability to save the worst of us. Paul called himself the worst and the chief of sinners. He killed and murdered, persecuted Christians. Christ died for one that persecuted, murdered, and killed Christians. Certainly he can forgive us. There's something else is that salvation and forgiveness of sins is not partial. Which means this. There's no part on my end that I have to make up to fulfill the work of Christ. It's either completed in Christ or it's not. If you're in Christ, it's a full salvation and you add nothing to it except for an empty hand of faith. It's been completed. You may ask sometimes, does God hear my prayers? Is God hearing my prayers as I pray to Him? I want you to remember what the text says. If you ever ask that question, if that's ever a concern to your heart, notice what the text says. Christ always lives to intercede. Yes, He hears your prayers. Can the Father deny the request of the Son? Can the Father deny His Son who intercedes on your behalf? No. The Puritan Anthony Burgess says this, His prayer can no more be refused than His blood. Does God hear your prayers? If you're in Christ, absolutely. Christ always lives to intercede on your behalf. Christ intercedes on our behalf, which encourages us. But there's something else, is that we're called to imitate Christ, aren't we? So should we not be interceding on behalf of one another? 
praying for one another, praying for the lost that they may come to know Christ, praying for those that are bearing burdens, that we are to bear burdens with, bear one another's burdens. We are to imitate Christ in this and always live to intercede on behalf of others. Now, we obviously are not high priests and we cannot intercede as Christ intercedes, but nonetheless, we can intercede on behalf of one another and we ought to always be interceding on, those, on behalf of those in need. And I just want to close with this one point is many today and perhaps maybe some here even think this. We're all God's children and He loves us all the same. That's what our world says, but that's not actually what the Bible says. The Bible says and paints us in two different, drastically different pictures. Is We're either called children of wrath or called enemies of God. Or we're called as those people that may come near Him and have access to Him through faith. And so what this text teaches us confirms what is throughout the Scriptures, is you cannot separate Christ from God. You cannot separate Christ from a belief in God. Someone will say, well, I believe in God. What that teaches us this is someone saying, I believe in God means absolutely nothing apart from Christ. It's actually a useless statement. It's like saying, I believe in leprechauns. You cannot separate God from Christ. But we have access to God through Christ, the God-man. God robed in flesh. Our Lord and Savior, our great High Priest in Christ. And the peace, the reconciliation is yours. The intercession is yours. The confidence, the assurance is yours through Christ. Let us praise our Savior. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the plan of salvation that is realized in Christ and Him coming to this earth to live life as a man, to walk the streets of Galilee, to face the ridicule and scorn of this world, but to live perfectly according to your will. We praise you that he fulfilled all that you gave him to do perfectly, and he then offers us a perfect salvation. Father, for us that are in Christ, we praise you that we may know this perfect salvation. And if there's any that do not know Christ, we pray that you draw them now that they may know the peace they may know the reconciliation and have the confidence and assurance of faith in Christ because of His work. We praise You for Your perfect plan of redemption. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.